All right, so today we are continuing our uh, sermon series through the Bible, exploring how every story whispers Jesus' name, which is uh, a, a concept that we've been borrowing from Sally Lloyd-Jones and from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And over the last two weeks, Pastor Paul has been teaching us about uh, the commissioning and the preparation of Jesus for his earthly ministry in the accounts of his baptism and then in his temptation in the wilderness. And so today, we are going to begin looking at some of the amazing events that took place in Jesus' ministry. And we're going to see how Jesus uses these events to uh, teach us about himself and about the nature of his kingdom. Um, And just a disclaimer before we begin, uh, Pastor Paul preached on this text uh, just back in early September, uh, right before we began this sermon series. Um, And when he did so, he focused on the perspective and the experience of uh, the bleeding woman. And so uh, as I approach the text today, um, I'm going to be placing my emphasis more on the perspective and experience of Jairus in these events. Um, so if I'm a bit light on details when it comes to the woman, and you, you notice that, and you think she's not getting her fair uh, shake, you're right, and this is why. Um, but yeah, it's impossible to preach through this text without referencing both characters, because they are important in our understanding of one another. At any rate, according to Luke, uh, from the outset of his ministry until now, Jesus has focused all of his energy on two things, really. He's been preaching. He's been preaching in the synagogues, in the fields, in the public squares, uh, on the mountainsides, wherever people would gather and listen. And he has been performing miraculous healings of countless numbers of people, lepers, uh, quadriplegics, uh, blind folks, uh, some guy with a withered hand. Um, Jesus has been healing all of these people that have been coming to him. And so it's no surprise that crowds uh, have begun following him wherever he goes. And it wasn't uncommon uh, when Jesus needed to rest for him to have to hop in a boat and actually sail away to escape the people. And this text uh, opens after such a break here. And we see Jesus arriving back on the shores of Galilee, uh, most likely in Capernaum. And our text says that the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And so it seems that the crowds that he had left to escape uh, had not yet dispersed, and they were still waiting for him to reappear. Um, And this isn't as crazy as it sounds, because when we think of someone sailing across the sea and then coming back again, we think it would take a very long time, but the Sea of Galilee is actually a small freshwater lake, and it really only took two hours to sail across it, so it's possible that this is even the same day, if not the next day, that Jesus has come back here, but that's neither here nor there. Um, In verse 41, we see that a particularly desperate man happens to be waiting for Jesus in the midst of the crowd that day, a man introduced to us as Jairus, Now, not much is known about Jairus because his name only appears in the three accounts of this event in the three synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But he's introduced to us as a ruler 
of the synagogue. And this tells us quite a bit. Remember that at this time, uh, Judaism is state religion in Israel. And, and even the people that were living in that territory at the time who were not Jews, they were not irreligious. So religion is the center of life. And, and specifically, uh, community life revolved around the synagogues and the religious rituals and ceremonies that took place there. And so as a ruler or an elder or leader in the synagogue, Jairus would have been a very well-known, very well-respected member of the community. He had status and authority and influence, and he was also likely fairly well-off, financially speaking. And in his culture, men like him carried themselves in a certain way. And so as we read in this very same verse that he came and fell at Jesus' feet and implored him for help, that ought to take us back for a minute. This is not the sort of thing that men like him did, much less before a man like Jesus. Because remember, uh, Jesus had already made himself quite unpopular with the religious establishment. Already back in chapter 6, they were starting to plot against him and, and, and try to come up with a plan for how to get rid of him. And so we have to ask ourselves, what would drive a man of power and influence among these same religious elite to throw himself at Jesus' feet and beg for help? Well, in verse 42, we read that he had a 12-year-old daughter and that she was dying. Now this is every parent's worst nightmare come true. Right? And I know that there are people watching this right now for whom this isn't just a theoretical fear. Some of you have lived through this. Some of you can relate to the details of this story better than the rest of us can. And I pray that for you, that you would take some comfort from what Jesus reveals about himself today in this text. Now, we don't know how long Jairus' daughter was sick for, and we don't know the nature of her ailment. But with him being a man of wealth and influence, Jairus would have had access to the best doctors and the most expensive treatments. And so for him to now be throwing himself at Jesus' feet seems to indicate pretty clearly to us that he had exhausted all of his options. He was desperate. He had nowhere else to turn, and the clock was ticking. He had heard the stories of Jesus' miracles. He had likely even witnessed a few of them himself. And he was willing to do absolutely anything at this point, even if it meant throwing away his whole reputation by going to Jesus for help. And now the text doesn't record Jesus' answer to Jairus. It just assumes that immediately they start heading towards his home. And as they're on their way, the crowd keeps growing and people keep trying to get Jesus' attention. The text says that they were pressing in on him. It gives the impression that they were, just, they were coming from all sides and just making it impossible to get anywhere quickly. Um, imagine a celebrity uh, being escorted out of their hotel by their security team while uh, thousands of paparazzi and fans are screaming and yelling for their attention. Only in this scenario... There are no barriers or bodyguards to keep the crowd at bay. And now imagine how Jairus is feeling at this moment. 
as I tried to put myself in his shoes and imagine the desperation uh, that he must have been feeling, I just, the only thing that came to mind for me was being stuck in traffic. Have you ever been stuck in traffic uh, while trying to respond to an emergency or an urgent situation? Right? Your, your mind is racing. There's really nothing you can do. You know it. You're, you're drumming holes in your steering wheel. It seems as though all the other lanes keep moving, even if it's slowly, but your lane inexplicably is at a standstill forever. And then when you finally decide to change lanes, you get into the next one, and then that lane stops dead, and then the lane you were in starts moving, right? It's absolutely maddening. You feel powerless, as though the whole world is conspiring against you to keep you from getting where you need to be. And so, imagine Jairus frantically trying to push a lane through the crowds, thinking, if I can just make it to that next corner, we'll be in the clear. But at every turn, at every shortcut, another crowd appears. And Jairus' heart continues to sink. And then... Just when it seems like they couldn't possibly be moving any slower, Jesus stops the entire procession in its tracks. What could possibly be happening? What could be going on? Jairus is thinking, and Jesus stops and says, who touched me? Now we see Peter in the text saying what Jairus must have been screaming in his head. He says, Master, you're, you're in a massive crowd everybody's touching you. But Jesus says, no, this is different. In verse 46, he says, I perceive that power has gone out from me. And now we might be thinking, okay, that makes a lot more sense. Um, And it does, but it's important for us to see that this also wasn't a rare occurrence. Uh, In Luke 6, verse 19, we read, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. So it wasn't uncommon for people to be healed simply by touching Jesus in a crowd. And we don't read of him stopping to single any of them out. And so Jesus obviously thought that this was an incredibly important moment for him to stop and teach something about himself. And so here we are introduced to the bleeding woman. She is in every way the opposite of who Jairus was, right? He is named in our text, and she is anonymous, right? He holds a position of power and authority and influence in uh, the religious community, and she is banned from worship, right? He's the ultimate insider, and she's the ultimate outsider, They could hardly contrast one another more perfectly except for one important detail, and that is that she too, we learn, has exhausted all of her resources trying to solve her problem. She too was utterly desperate. And so what Jairus and the bleeding woman have in common is that through their respective trials, they have both come to the conclusion that Jesus is their only remaining hope. They were both forced to the place where they had no other choice but to exercise faith in him. And if you're, if you're looking for points in this sermon, this would be the first one. Um, no matter who we are, 
uh, whether we are an insider or an outsider, whether we are famous or anonymous, whether we are powerful or powerless, rich or poor, we all need the same Savior. And ultimately, every human being who has ever lived or ever will live will acknowledge at some point that only Jesus can offer what we most truly what we are most truly and deeply in need of. The only question is whether we will come to that conclusion in time. I'll, I'll never forget what one of my professors once said about trials and suffering in the lives of believers. He said, it is in his mercy that God brings us to the end of ourselves. Right? So he's saying it's, it's, it's God's mercy when we find ourselves at the end of our resources, at the end of our ability to help ourselves with no other options for us to be brought to our knees before God. It is his mercy that brings us to that place. C.S. Lewis put it this way in the problem of pain. He said, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. He says, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And he goes on, he says, it removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. You see, oftentimes when trials and suffering arise in our lives, we default to thinking that God is angry with us or punishing us for something. But for the believer, God is working all things together for your ultimate good. He's instructing you in your trial. He is growing your faith through your suffering. He is opening the eyes of your heart to understand truths that we would not otherwise come to know. If there were a way for us to truly learn these things without, uh, that didn't involve rather suffering or pain or death, I'm confident that God would prefer it. Johnny Erickson Tata says, uh, she's a woman who is no stranger to suffering, if you, if you know who she is. And she once wrote, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And this is a profound statement that comes out of having to actually grapple with the question of how a good God can allow his creatures to suffer. The truth is that most of us will never understand that Jesus is truly what we need until we've been brought to the place where he's all that we have left. And that may sound flippant or simplistic to some of you. Especially those of you who are currently suffering through significant trials. But it's true. It's just really hard to see from where you are at the moment. And Jairus can relate. He's in the thick of it. So let's get back into our story here. So here's Jairus. His daughter's close to death. There isn't much time. And now Jesus has stopped to have a conversation with this woman who's explained that she's been bleeding for 12 years. And so we have to put ourselves back in his shoes, right? He's thinking, come on, this woman has a non-terminal disease, right? She has been, uh, she's already been dealing with this for 12 years. Sure, surely she can wait a few more hours, right? Let's go. There are more 
pressing things to deal with, Jesus. But it's, it's as if Jesus has forgotten about Jairus and his daughter as he fully engages with this woman. Why do you think that is? It's not because Jesus had attention problems. It is because he knows that both Jairus and this woman have a deeper and more pressing need than the one they think they have. Jesus is instructing them both. He is growing both of their faith. Faiths? I'm not sure how you're supposed to say that, but through this event. <laughs> um, and this is the way that, isn't this the way, rather, that Jesus always operates, right? And I guess this, this could maybe be a second point. <clears throat> Jesus always gives us exactly what we need when we need it. Not what we think we need when we want it. All right? See, the woman would have been happy to simply receive her healing and disappear into the crowd. But she didn't just need for her bleeding to stop. She needed to learn to come to Jesus in faith, despite her feelings of shame and unworthiness. She needed to know that Jesus was every bit as accessible to someone like her as he is to someone like Jairus. So when she finally reaches out with boldness to touch the Savior, Jesus responds by taking the time to publicly restore her. He wasn't satisfied with just allowing her to be healed and to shrink back into the crowd. He wanted to teach her what she needed to know about him. And if you want to know more about that, go into our sermon archives and look up Paul's sermon from early September on this passage where he delves deep into that. Um, okay, so that's all fine and good, but what is Jairus supposed to be learning from all of this? Right, Because while Jesus is in the middle of restoring this woman, a servant of Jairus' comes running up and says, and this is verse 49, he says, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. And the implications of the servant's words are clear. It was too late. They had used up all the time they had. She's gone and there's nothing that anyone can do for her anymore. Well, Jairus must have been numb with grief as Jesus spoke the words of verse 50 to him. Jesus says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. He says, do not fear. What on earth was Jesus talking about? Right, his daughter, Jairus' daughter was gone. This had all been a waste. What does he mean, do not fear? But Jesus wasn't done with Jairus yet. No, he had a, uh, a lesson custom-made for him to learn, which had been the purpose of this trial all along, unbeknownst to Jairus. And so Jesus says to him, do not fear, only believe. And they carry on. And in the very next verse of our text, they arrive at Jairus' house. And there's already a crowd of mourners gathered outside. And as he's heading into the house, Jesus says to them, uh, stop your mourning, right? She's not dead, she's only sleeping. And the crowd of mourners laughs at him. 
because they're quite certain by this point that she is in fact dead. Right? And imagine again, Jairus desperately clinging to any last shred of faith that Jesus could actually do something for his daughter. The mocking of these mourners must have hit him like another wet blanket thrown on the smoldering ashes of his belief at that point. But Jesus heads straight into where his daughter is lying. He reaches out and he takes her lifeless little hand in his and he gently speaks the words, child, arise. And our text says, this is verse 55, and her spirit returned and she got up at once. Can you imagine what this must have been like for her parents. What an emotional roller coaster this must have been, right? First, their daughter was dying, uh, but then they, they realized there's one last chance at saving her. We got to get this, this Jesus guy. We got to get him here. But then Jesus makes him wait until it seems like it's too late. And then he comes and raises her from the dead anyway. What were they supposed to make from all of this? What are we supposed to make? of all of this. Remember, at the beginning of the sermon, I said that the miraculous events of Jesus' life and ministry were used by Jesus to teach people about himself and about the nature of his kingdom. Okay, so what are we supposed to take away from this? Well, for one, through these events, Jairus and everyone who heard about it, including us reading this 2,000 years later, would be able to see that there are no limitations to Jesus' power. Right? We, have, we can have confident faith when things are not going according to our plans because God's plans cannot be thwarted, right? not even by death. And that is absolutely true. But this isn't the way these types of stories typically end for most of us. Right? These were very unique circumstances. If we were in Jairus's or the bleeding woman's shoes, we would pray for similar outcomes, right? But that, that would hardly be a guarantee. These were exceptions to the norms of life. And so there has to be a bigger point here. The king of heaven did not give up everything to become a man, to enter into human experience, just to make this life more bearable for us by healing our physical diseases and disabilities, or even by raising our loved ones from the dead. Right? The, the, the woman's restoration pointed forward to a complete and eternal restoration, not only with people, but with God himself. Jairus' reunion with his daughter points forward to the true and eternal reunion in a world where death has long since faded from human memory. So how does this happen? Kids, do you remember the story of the paralyzed man uh, whose friends carried him on his bed to Jesus to be healed, right? And when they arrive at the house where Jesus is teaching that day, it's so crowded that they can't get in there. They can't bring him to uh, Jesus to be healed. And so they climb on the roof. They remove a section of the roof and they lower his whole bed down through the roof in front of Jesus, right? And do you remember what Jesus says when this man uh, drops through the roof in front of him? Right? Jesus looks at him and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, obviously, Jesus could tell that this was a paralyzed man who wanted to be healed, right? But he also knew that this man had a deeper and far more important need that needed to be met. And when the Pharisees heard Jesus say that his sins were forgiven, they were angry because they said only God can forgive sins, right? And so Jesus says to them, which is easier for me to say to someone, your sins are forgiven, or for me to tell a paralyzed man to get up and walk, right? Obviously for you and me, it's easier to just walk up to someone and say, hey, your sins are forgiven, because there's no way for them to prove that we're not right, right? But it's, it's impossible for you or I to walk up to a paralyzed person and say, get up and walk, because... The proof is right there that we can't do it. And so Jesus says, because I want you to know that I have the power and the authority to forgive sins, I'm going to heal this man, right? It was nothing for Jesus to heal someone. We see in our text today that it was nothing for Jesus to raise a girl from the dead, right? But he came to accomplish something far better. All of Jesus' healing miracles are meant to provide evidence for everything, that everything else that he ever said about himself was true, and he was able to do it, right? They were meant to provide little glimpses into what he was ultimately accomplishing. And look, even though it's not recorded in the Bible, it's a safe bet that both the bleeding woman and Jairus' daughter eventually died anyway, right? Because we all die. Physical ailments, disabilities, suffering, pain, loss, death, everything that is wrong in this world stems from the curse of sin. That is the deeper problem that we all have in common. And Jesus' healing miracles testify to who he truly is. He is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world, to reverse that curse, to put an end to pain and suffering and death once and for all. And in the culminating miracle of his life, in his own resurrection, he testifies that it is finished. He has fully and finally defeated sin and death and everything that accompany them. He doesn't just heal or raise us from the dead temporarily. No, he has purchased eternal life for us with him in his kingdom where Revelation 21 says there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because this old order of things is passing away as he is making all things new. And it is this Jesus who says to us in the midst of our trials and our pain and our suffering, do not fear, only believe. He can do it. He's proven it a thousand times over. He can do what he says he's going to accomplish. We can trust in him. We can put our faith in him. We do not have to fear. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for these little glimpses into your eternal kingdom that we have in Scripture. Help us to see that while, that while these signs, while these events 
are amazing. And of course, we all desire healing and we all desire miracles in this life. And that's not wrong, but Lord, help us to see that the eternal perfection that is signified by these signs, that is pointed to by these signs, is far, far better. We thank you for Jesus and for his precious saving work on the cross to make these things possible for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.